Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for September 9th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we were on hand for the Arkansas Connectivity Summit at the Hot Springs Convention Center. We heard from a variety of experts, including a sitting FCC commissioner, about the state's effort to expand and improve broadband internet access and about the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. First, I sat down with FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr before he delivered the keynote address at the Connectivity Summit. And he talked about the importance of planning and implementation in broadband expansion and how critical it is to have accurate maps of broadband connectivity. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Commissioner Carr. Oh, Um, really glad to do it. Thank you. uh, Is this your first time in Hot Springs or? You know, I've passed through Arkansas before, but this is my first time down in Hot Springs. We're having a great time so far. Well, we're we're glad to have you. Uh, I just want to get started by talking a little bit about what you will be talking about today. Um, Can you give us a, a tease of what what you'll be discussing. So look, you know, high speed connectivity, having affordable access to the internet is table stakes in today's economy for educating our kids, for accessing healthcare, uh, particularly for America's farmers and ranchers. And obviously that's a big industry here uh, in Arkansas. And the story is a bit mixed across the country, really. There are many, many pockets of this country where we've made tremendous progress bridging the digital divide over the last couple of years. If you look back, for instance, in 2016, we put up something like 708 new cell sites total in the country that year. Well, flash forward to 2019, and we had 46,000 new cell sites go up in this country. And that's because at the federal level, we were streamlining regulations, we were getting the rules right, and that helped unleash a massive build. But it's been uneven, particularly around the edges. There's still too many parts of this country, too many Americans that don't have connectivity. So The good news with respect to that is we are right now seeing an unprecedented infusion of federal and state dollars being directed towards efforts to bridge the digital divide. At the moment, the challenge is less the money, and it is more how do we coordinate among local, state, and federal leaders to make sure that money goes in the ground. That's why this Farm Bureau's Connectivity Summit is coming at the exact right moment and bringing together all of the stakeholders to make sure that the American people get the bang for the buck of these dollars that are being infused here uh, and that they go into the ground. And so is that a, a concern, is making sure that the, the money gets to the right projects and is, is funneled correctly and, and, and everything is tracked accordingly? I mean, is that a, a concern at the federal level? I think that's one of the biggest issues. You know, look, there's always a lot of challenges. One is infrastructure in terms of the regulations and frankly, cost too much and took too long to build internet infrastructure in this country. And at the federal level, we spent the last three or four years streamlining those rules. We've got that in a pretty good spot. The next challenge was how do we have the money that's needed to build out internet connectivity? Look, you've got uh, costs in the ballpark of $30,000 to run a mile of fiber. And that makes a lot of business sense when you're downtown in a big city. But when you're in parts of the country that have one or two people per square mile, uh, that $30,000 is not going to pencil out for the private sector. So we need an infusion of federal support to do that. And now, particularly after COVID, when everybody realizes the value of connectivity, there's a lot of political support, support for spending money on infrastructure. So yes, the point we're at now is how do we take that money and make sure it doesn't get uh, sidetracked either to overbuilding places that already have service or upgrading gold plating places that already have pretty good broadband. How do we focus 
that money in areas that have zero megabits per second. And this is particularly important for farm country. So a lot of people wonder, well, there's not a lot of people there. Why do you need high-speed connectivity uh, across America's farms and ranches? And I'll tell you, here's the reason. We now have the technology that can pull 18 gigabits worth of data off of a single plant. This is imaging. This is soil sensors. So you can take all that data, and that's what we need to get uh, productive, efficient farming today. Well, 18 gigabits of data, that's about two times the amount of data that the average smartphone user uh, consumes every single month. So when you look out on, you know, uh, Arkansas's soybeans, rice fields, every single plant, think of it as a smartphone. And that will start to give you a sense for the data needs and why we need high-speed coverage to blanket this country, not just concentrated population centers. Yeah, and I think that is something we've seen that people don't take into account. A lot of the farm equipment these days is very, you know, technology dependent. Yep. And not only that, but then you have people dealing with education, you know, their, their kids going to school in these rural areas and having some difficulty connecting even with schools. Um, we heard a lot during this uh, COVID period of kids going to the local McDonald's just so they can connect, you know, and, and do some of their schoolwork. So there's lots of challenges in those areas. Um, what's the, do you have any uh, good examples of who's doing this right or, you know, states that have really attacked this in, in certain ways that you've seen that are models? Well, you're right that uh, combines, tractors today, they are essentially mini data centers. I mean, obviously they have the ability to drive themselves. I've been on uh, many of them and you see the amount of connectivity that they have and that they need. And you're right, during COVID-19, parents were driving kids to McDonald's to use the Wi-Fi hotspots and we need to get the job done so that we don't see that anymore. I think one thing that Arkansas is positioned very well with, and I was at an event uh, just recently, and then obviously at this summit as well with Governor Hutchinson, is they've put in place a grant um, uh, body that can take federal or state dollars and award that money to broadband projects. So I think that's an important model that the state is doing right. I think broadband mapping is another key. Uh, Congress directed the FCC over a year ago, gave us $100 million uh, after that to stand up nationwide broadband maps to help states, uh, the federal government, accurately identify, right, here's where we're missing connectivity. Let's put money there. And until we get those maps completed, that's a bit of a choke point with respect to federal funding because I don't want uh, to be pouring billions of dollars, and that's what we've got, billions of dollars, uh, not knowing exactly where there's connectivity and where there's not. We've got to identify with precision the unconnected communities. And I know that's something you've talked a bit about is the mapping process. Where do things stand in the mapping process? And is there anything states can do to help with that process? Well, unfortunately, it's a bit of a black box right now, and it shouldn't be. So I work at the FCC, and uh, uh, at the beginning of the year in January or February, you know, I asked our new leadership, when are we going to get these maps done? And the answer I got was not this year. Uh, I then called for the FCC to complete the maps this fall, which is about now. Uh, but we haven't gotten any indication of when the FCC's new leadership is going to complete that. Now, it's a hard project. We've got staff working very, very hard to get it done. I, I don't begrudge what they're doing. I just think we should be more upfront with our timeline because then that will decide, can I wait another month for this map and then use that to drive my uh, state effort? Or is it going to be another year down the road when I maybe got to stand up my own state initiative to uh, look at mapping? But ideally, we'd be running the mapping solely at the federal level because we want one map that's accurate we don't need a lot of inaccurate maps. Right. Um, is there anything 
you know, people can do at the, you know, grassroots level to help, uh, you know, move that process along? Or is there anything that you want to hear from people out there when you're getting feedback? Or what's the process there for people to say, we, we want to be a part of this, and what can we do to help speed yeah, I think, things you know, along? Yeah, you know, state reps, uh, you know, just everyday people, yeah, speaking up and sort of asking where we are in that process. But I think the most important thing is what we're going to do here today, which is you're bringing federal leaders, local leaders, state leaders together, make sure we know who each other are, that we're talking with each other, that we're on the same page. I mean, events like this, um, you, you may be able to see it in a tangible way, but this is going to make a big difference to make sure that we move quickly and efficiently with Internet builds. Great. Well, we appreciate you being here today. Look forward to hearing from you later, and thank you for taking time to join us. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Next, Dr. Joseph Sandford talks about the impact of broadband access on healthcare in Arkansas and shares results from the connectivity survey conducted by UAMS and Arkansas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Joseph Sanford, on the Arkansas AgCast. Uh, you know, I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about um, some of the work that your team is doing uh, there at UAMS. You're the director in digital of digital health and innovation, obviously. And uh, just kind of want to talk a little bit about um, some of the remarks you made today and, and um, you know, just kind of the future of broadband, especially as it applies to healthcare. But let's start by covering the basics first. So okay. why is UAMS interested in uh, broadband and connectivity uh, across the state? Sure. UAMS wants to help reach patients wherever they are at. And we've been interested in digital health and what used to be called telehealth or telemedicine Mm -hmm. for over 20 years. The goal here being that not every patient can come to a hospital or a doctor's office Mm -hmm. and not every visit is most appropriate or needs to be in person to render high quality effective care. So the goal really is to be where a patient needs us to be when a patient needs us to be there, whatever that form may take. Yeah, no, that certainly makes makes a lot of sense as far as uh, being able to provide that treatment. Have you seen an uptick in need for um, telemedicine or remote health care, I guess? <laughs> yeah, uh, an enormous uptick, yes. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure, the The challenge of COVID, um, and it's it's been a enormously interesting professional challenge mm-hmm. to help deliver quality care in a pandemic, um, the likes of which certainly uh, my generation had never seen. Mm -hmm. And so what we had was a need because COVID was a respiratory virus. uh, We needed a way to be able to see patients at scale quickly and not have that be face-to-face, which Mm -hmm. is what digital medicine and digital health is really designed to do. And so our goal was to scale it up as quickly as possible while remaining high quality service. And we had to go from, uh, you know, I would say, I'm trying to think of a, a statistic off the top of my head that would be meaningful to your listeners. I would say that we increased our average telemedicine visits in a given week, 40 fold over what we were doing in oh, wow. say 2018 or 2019. Mm-hmm. It became something that was a very specialty specific and program oriented tool mm-hmm. to a broad based tool that any provider uh, could use to augment their clinical practice. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's ramping up really quickly to meet um, uh, a need that is uh, saving lives. I mean, yeah. And when we say almost overnight, we're not really exaggerating all that much. When the pandemic hit in March of 2020 in Arkansas, 
we stood up and expanded our telemedicine service offerings to every clinical service line in the span of about 96 hours. Holy cow. And then that remained, uh, it, you know, we had a big peak and Mm -hmm. when we figured out and learned more about what COVID was and how we could, how we could work, uh, in the context of staying safe for providers and patients, we brought back more in-person visits. Uh, and so we stabilized at uh, a level much higher than our base from 2018 or 2019, mm-hmm. but nothing like our peak. And mm-hmm. then for your listeners, you remember back in February, we had, uh, I think, what we called snowpocalypse. Sure. That week, um, the state was shut down. And we were able to still deliver care because we pivoted all of our in-person visits to telemedicine where it was appropriate. And mm-hmm. Obviously, there's some we had to reschedule. And, it, you know, it's never a one-size-fits-all solution. But... We were able to get back up to peak level COVID telemedicine visits almost at the drop of a hat uh, and and really help not interrupt care that patients needed. Because some of these patients wait weeks and months to get in to see some specialists. And sure. access is an enormous challenge, and we always want to be able to provide care for our patients as soon as possible. But humans are limited in terms of, you know, only so many people specialize in so many things in a given in a given year. And so we really want to find the balance that delivers that care as quickly and as effectively as possible. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you guys have, have taken the steps to do that. So I'm interested, what have you learned along the way? And I want to break this down into sort of two categories, if you will. I know, I know in your remarks here at the connectivity summit, you were just speaking about some, some survey work that, that had been done. So let's, let's put a hole on that, um, I guess, and think, Think more about uh, anecdotally, maybe some things that that you've learned along the way. Some challenges to providing healthcare in a rural environment, specifically. Um, are there, you know, are there, you know, are there s- unique circumstances or circumstances that could have been addressed by potentially having access? Sure. Uh, the, I think there's two two narratives there. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that is not in any of the data. Uh, it's something that I learned through personal experience. Okay. Uh, is how savvy the average, what I would call non-technical user became quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'll, I'll use an example from my own family on this. Uh, so when at the height of the pandemic, no one's doing anything and we're all kind of socially isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, my family was telling me about how they started playing hearts with um, some other family members across the country. And I said, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. Are you playing on dad's laptop or how, what, what are you doing? And, sure. and so they, the, the story was, oh, no, we have this app for the game. And then we all get on a, a video conference call and we juggle it with a password. And then we text each other. The, and I was like, this is the most complicated wow. setup I've ever seen. <laughs> and they are making it work every week. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was, they, they needed to figure it out. They wanted to figure it out. They had a motivating factor. And so they were teaching me, uh, nominally an expert in, in, you know, mm-hmm. digital technologies. Mm-hmm. They were teaching me tricks about managing a multi-party interactive experience <laughs> that I, um, I had no idea about. I sure. took away and used to this day. Yeah. That's very cool. That's very cool. Uh, and really outshines any type of virtual happy hours that I participated in along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the, the other side of it is um, it is unfortunately a story of the have and have nots. We're Mm -hmm. seeing people that had um, what I would call decent internet, which we 
we can use as the definition of broadband, 25.3, mm-hmm. uh, or better, had a much less socially isolated, much more um, survivable quarantine and pandemic mm-hmm. uh, than those that did not. And I think that we see that in um, feelings of social isolation, feelings of depression. Right. I'll, I'll call out just for anyone that may need it. Uh, the state is running a program for mental health called AR Connect. Uh, you can Google it, um, and it's anyone that needs to talk to somebody. It's uh, run through UAMS and, and our uh, behavioral health uh, service line. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of uptick in people that they're really not doing bad. They just need someone to talk to. And it's right. gotten better since the states opened up and the pandemic had waned prior to the Delta variant. But in the height of this, it was an incredibly isolating experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that we uh, underestimate the long-term impacts right now on just what that's going to mean. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up and and want to make sure we point back to it at the end of the episode again. But um, you're right. I mean, that's an important important, um, piece and and resource to some of this isolation that occurs uh, because of lack of connectivity in some cases. Well, one of the things that we've heard about across the – across the past year and a half, I guess, is impacts from education. I won't mm-hmm. ask you to speak on that, but one of the one of the anecdotes that we hear over and over and over again from farm families is uh, that trip to McDonald's, the trip to the uh, local Farm Bureau office to complete an assignment or download schoolwork or things like that. Are you guys seeing a similar pattern uh, or, or occurrences in uh, healthcare appointments? Um, we are, and it's not, I think, as pervasive just because the incidence and opportunity to see it is lower, mm-hmm. but we have had experiences where uh, a patient is doing their healthcare visit uh, through using a McDonald's or Starbucks free Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. and so they're sitting out in their car in the parking lot linked to that Wi-Fi because that's that's what they have access to, All right. and so the, the need and the question for a, a broad-reaching public network whether that's connected through schools, whether that's connected through community centers, public libraries, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but I do think that there is an incredible opportunity for Main Street, Arkansas, and the city centers that have had a decrease in commercial activity. Um, I think having very good internet access as a, um, it's kind of like free parking. Mm-hmm. If you sure. have it, it's, it's not going to make or break your business or your city, but mm-hmm. man, is it nice when it's there. Mm-hmm. A public service almost in, in some ways or another. Well, okay, so we've talked about some anecdotal examples. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's move into some data. Okay. Uh, and I know in your remarks earlier, you made very clear um, that some of this data is not um, – you know, necessarily uh, scientific in a, in a way. I'll let you explain a little bit more about sure. that before we get into it. Yeah, so the point of that was to say we, we did a, a survey. Um, it was not um, adjusted methodologically uh, in our in our, um, our build-out to control for demographic adjustments. It was not meant or designed to target any one. Uh, for example, we, we, to your Farm Bureau listeners, we did ask and were interested particularly in agribusiness. Um, Mm -hmm. But we didn't limit it to agribusiness. And so we also, you know, the survey was opt-in. You could complete as much or as little of it as you wanted. Sure. Uh, So from what we would call a a 
high rigor scientific methodology that would be intended for peer review or publication. This isn't that. Mm -hmm. This was designed and intended to be an experiential survey. Tell us what you're experiencing. Tell us what your frustrations are. Tell us if you're happy or not. We want to know whoever wants to opt into this, we're listening. Right. Uh, And so I think that it is not uh, invalidating. I think we can take lessons from it. Mm -hmm. Um, I would not use this as the end-all be-all to build a public policy, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we saw from it is we saw a lot of confirmation around other studies that were stronger in terms of methodologies. Uh, We saw that people are not just angry all the time. Lots of people are happy with their internet service provider. Mm -hmm. They just wish it was better when they needed it. Mm -hmm. And it was at the speeds that were advertised when they needed it. And this is uh, unsurprising to the consumer um, uh, internet business, right? You get, you get sold a a peak service. You know, this is the best we're going to be able to give you Mm -hmm. whatever that number is. And, it is, it is not irrational or inappropriate that network performance is going to vary across time of day based on number of concurrent users. Mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing for me was how, again, how savvy the average citizen is uh, becoming about this. They know to speak about the difference between a download and an upload speed. Mm-hmm. They can speak to... If I have one user on one device on my internet, I'm usually okay. But when I hit three concurrent users, uh, then the the network goes down or my my local internet fails. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't plant any of those words. We didn't ask them, sure. you know, concurrent user experience. This is what's important to them when it's important to them, uh, and so they they speak. Um, uh, with with great uh, sophistication on the difference between fiber and cable and satellite and wireless. And so I don't necessarily know where they're getting this education, but they are learning and they are listening. Yeah, sure. So this is an audio uh, medium, obviously, being mm-hmm. a podcast. Uh, so I'm interested if you could share, I, I'm specifically interested in some of the um, findings as far as speed, uh, sure. You you in your in your presentation, uh, sort of drew a line showing uh, what we call what we call ideal or or or, or, or good broadband access. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested if you could describe that sort of visually to us, or 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 in a way that that communicates to our listeners uh, what what the survey found. Uh, yes, I, I think that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're talking about in terms of a, a anchor point is a uh, hundred megabit per second download and upload speed. Mm-hmm. And okay. so um, the computer scientists and engineers in the uh, listening uh, community are going to lambast me for this, but for the ease of, uh, um, of talking about it without a graph in front of you, mm-hmm. think about uh, one megabit as one million Mm-hmm. and one kilobit as 1,000. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for audio, you would want a really good audio connection between 256 to 384 or so kilobits. Okay. Pretty low mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Remember, for the old school of broadband definition, 25 megabit, 25 million down was the definition, and 3 megabit, 3 million up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can do a lot of really, really pristine, high-quality audio in one megabit. You could have three or four podcasts running, no problem. Uh, sure. You could um, 
in the video space, it starts to get much more bandwidth expensive very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you have, think about your old school um, cathode ray tube TV, that's going to have a resolution of uh, what we'd call 480p, 480i technically. But we'll, yeah. yeah. So a high def signal, 720, 1080, 4K, gets exponentially larger in terms of its bandwidth. Mm-hmm. So to download uh, Netflix in uh, 4K HD, that is going to take 25 megabits, 25 million in and of itself. Same would be true to upload. Most people are not uploading 4K high-def video on their video teleconferencing. Sure. But if their kids in the house are, you know, both of them are on a video conference for Google Classroom or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're trying to run your business and you have it going, mm-hmm. you can very, very quickly saturate at 5 megabit those video signals. And so it is not uncommon to have a max effective throughput of four video conferences at mm-hmm. 25. And it's going to be a bad experience because there's going to be congestion on the network and there's going to be stuttering and lag and people are going to sound like they're robots because <laughs> the network is trying to automatically adjust what bandwidth is available for all of these users. Mm-hmm. If you go up to 100 megabit down and 100 megabit up, then you have four times the capacity to juggle all that concurrent activity. And so if more households are going to be online more of the time, it's not that any one user is going to use 100 megabit. Right. It's that more people are going to be on the same network at the same time, and you want that, that overhead, you want that clearance so that the network can adjust. It's built for that purpose now. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, I think there was something like, 130 respondents or so yep. uh, to that survey. That's correct. And the vast majority, I'm getting really unscientific. Point it, we're not trying to be scientific. Uh, it's not the point of it. The vast majority of those fell uh, well below that 100 megabit per second upload yes. and 100 megabit per second download speeds. Yes. Right? Is that? I would say that's very fair. I would say there was, if you look at the old definition, and it's not surprising, um, uh-huh. we, for I don't know, 20 years now, maybe I've been operating under an FCC definition of 25.3. And so that's what the internet service providers built out towards. That's what they were told to do. That's fair. Uh, So I would say the majority of people, probably even the super majority of people had uh, that reported access had better than 25.3. That said, I would say that only a third of total respondents probably had better than 100, 100, actually, let me be specific. A third had better than 100 megabit download. Mm-hmm. I would say 20% at most had 100 megabit upload. Mm-hmm. The network wasn't built for that. And that's that expectation, as I talked about um, uh, earlier today. We built a consumption network. It was a, if you were at home and you're a, not a business, you are were never intended to upload data at a high um, throughput. Sure. Before COVID, before we started doing all this work from home, um, the biggest upload usage was in video games where you were, you know, your your kids are playing uh, Madden or whatever, and Uh and they're uploading their data to their friends so that the game can stay synchronized. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was was the big challenge five years ago in, is the network ready to upload a bunch of data? Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened, and we've completely surpassed that need, and we're into a whole new ballgame. 
Right. Yeah. I'm thinking about friends who have been in the photography or videography business for a number of years who have had to upgrade to business level internet access at home just to get projects uploaded because, you know, the rest of us were okay with five mm-hmm. to 10 uh, megabit per second uh, upload speeds. But if when you rely on that upload, which now a lot of us do working from home, um, that starts to impact a lot of people. Well, uh, we've talked, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and one aspect that I think your listeners are going to be far more expert than, than I would be, but I am learning a lot about is just what it means in the modern agribusiness to mm-hmm. be a, uh, a, a 21st century organization and the amount of GPS satellite coordination and the data that's running through these farms is, is really impressive to me. And so mm-hmm. I think that this is not just a healthcare activity. This is not just a retail economic activity. It's not a service industry. It's manufacturing. It's agribusiness. There is opportunity for every business that Arkansas is in to really invest in this as a, as a network infrastructure. Yeah, you're right. And, and now you'll get me on my soapbox a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I was at a press conference on Friday uh, with a company that is uh, basically aggregating farm data. And, mm-hmm. and there was a, a grower on this uh, panel who talked about using nine software programs across his farm. This this gentleman is building API programs. Talk, talk about adapt adaptivity yeah. and, and and teaching yourself some things. Uh, he, he's building APIs to oh, wow. have these software programs speak to each other to simplify the data um, collection and, and evaluation. Oh, that's right? really cool. So you think about nine software programs. This is one farm. Yeah. Nine software programs. Think about the upload to that. Now, why, why does that matter to a farmer? Well, what's on the other side of that data interpretation? Things like input reductions, mm-hmm. um, things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, GPS tracking, fuel, so fuel costs. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are real dollars and cents that come as a result of being able to interpret upload and or interpret data well and the weather data integration that is being done Mm -hmm. now it's just astounding amounts of data it's really really interesting stuff yeah and sometimes these guys are working with consultants uh just like every other industry in the world that consultant may be your neighbor that consultant may be across the country Mm -hmm. uh needing to see this data and every time you can't get that data up uh, to share with somebody, this farmer in, in, uh, in particular, they went to a cloud-based storage. Right. So as they're driving the field, this data is going into a cloud and can be viewed real time by a consultant or partner, you know, someone who's helping them, which could, again, literally mean dollars and cents at that moment. And so the longer that data upload lags or the longer it takes to aggregate or, or, or get to the cloud or get where it needs to be, the more money it's costing that grower. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think that in healthcare, you know, agribusiness shares a same time sensitivity concern. Mm-hmm. Every day, sometimes even every half day, really, really matters in terms of what you can accomplish in your in your whatever business you're doing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. See, I went to heavy farming and got started to move away from healthcare. No, but, no, not at all. But I'm that's just, the point. I'm not a farmer. I didn't. But yeah, but I I think that the data problems we share, you know, just as any profession. We share a same need for uh, timely, accurate, uh, and reliable data access. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. And it goes on to manufacturing and so on and so forth, just as you mentioned. Well, all right, I could have this conversation for a really long time, but um, in the spirit of, of, of wrapping up and bringing a point, can you share with us just 
kind of what's next uh, for UMS? What's next on the horizon for you guys, for your team? Uh, what are you thinking about, you know, as we as we hear about some investments that the governor announced today? Uh, what's what's the near term for, for you all? So I think, yeah, the governor announced uh, some really impressive and ambitious targets. And I think that that, that is... Um, that's going to be really, really impressive. And what we, what we're thinking about next, what I'm thinking about next in digital health, is is two things. There is a enormous increase in the amount of data patients are collecting about themselves through mm-hmm. their their wearable, their Fitbit, their Apple Watch, whatever, what have you. Yeah. Um, there is an enormous interest in this data. What we don't have yet is system, uh, is a system that seamlessly integrates all of this personally collected data, ingests it into the electronic medical record so that it is medically actionable data mm-hmm. and provides physicians, nurses, clinics with those tools and data visualizations so they don't drown in that data because it can be very overwhelming very quickly. And how you sure. separate uh, the wheat from the chaff, if you will, of what is a, a noisy false reading in some personal monitor versus something that you actually need to be clinically concerned about is an enormous opportunity, not just for uh, better devices, better data communication, uh, better data ingest and storage and interpretation. That's where you'll start hearing machine learning get thrown about. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got a huge opportunity now that we have pretty good connection. We could always use better, but pretty good connection between uh, hospitals and clinics getting that next layer out to the home, that new last mile, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, where a patient feels confident that the data they're concerned about is being communicated effectively and treated responsibly by their healthcare provider for their overall health and wellness, I think is, is a really exciting space to be in. Yeah, I would agree. And I love, I love hearing the, the, that last mile, the final mile term come to healthcare as well. I think we're seeing that play out in front of us. Um, and, uh, love that you guys are thinking about that right now. Well, Dr. Sanford, thank you so much for joining me uh, on here on the Arkansas AgCast. Appreciate your insight, and would love to have you back uh, sometime Anytime. in the near future. Yeah. Libraries play an important role in connectivity across the state. The Arkansas State Library's Amber Gregory discusses how they offer Internet access, connected devices, and digital navigation to all citizens. Okay, Amber Gregory with me here on the Arkansas AdCast. And Amber, thank you for joining me. Uh, and I guess more so, thank you for agreeing to uh, give a talk here at the Arkansas Connectivity Summit. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, excellent. Well, let's just kind of dive in here. I am very curious. Um, you know, you work with the uh, Arkansas State Library, uh, manager of E-Rate Services there. Um but your talk today was along the lines of education and library broadband access. So uh, the first question I've got to ask you is maybe the most obvious one, and that is uh, why in the world is, uh, is a library or Arkansas State Library uh, interested in broadband access across the state of Arkansas? So I think the most obvious answer, the thing that comes to mind the first, <laughs> first to me is that you know, we have 225 public libraries spread out all all across the state of Arkansas. So every county has at least one public library. Sure. So we are very interested in the connectivity that these libraries have because they serve so many patrons across the state. They serve 
basically everybody in the state. Mm-hmm. Because if you are in a library service area, that library is open to you and all of the services that the library provides. So, can you <laughs> tell me? I lost the thread here. No, it's okay. <laughs> so, why is why is why would a library, or more specifically, the Arkansas State Library, interested in broadband connectivity for the state? Yes. So the Arkansas State Library, my role there is to help the 225 public libraries of the state get funding for broadband and increase their broadband connections. So I work directly with those individual public libraries. And it's really important because I think when we look at what services our libraries offering their communities, Mm -hmm. so many of those services are broadband based. So what we're talking about is, you know, you have patrons that are coming in because they need to use a public access computer. Um, We also see that there's so many essential services that are online. And if you have a patron or a student who doesn't have connectivity at home, oftentimes that library is the only free place in the community where they can come to use the Internet. So beyond just does the library have connectivity and is it free for everybody in the community, oftentimes you have librarians who work as digital navigators. Mm -hmm. So they're helping anybody who comes in with the digital literacy skills. So what that means is you might not need to actually know how to do all of these things. And there's somebody at the library who can help you do that. And especially since the pandemic started, we've seen so many more things go online from students needing to complete homework, um, people working from home. And if you don't have the internet connection at home, sometimes you have to go to the library, maybe sit in the library parking lot, utilize their Wi-Fi to do your job. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also we've seen a lot of programs where you need to file online. I think one of those... um, you know, it would be like the emergency broadband benefit program or, you know, things of that nature, even filing your taxes, you know, these things have to happen online. But mm-hmm. I think if we're, we're talking about what, you know, what's most common, you know, I think we, we think about students that need to access their homework. If they're not at school, they can do that at the library. Yeah. You know, so... Plus, there's all these cool virtual programming (laughs) things that libraries are doing. Just that whole idea that you don't have to come to the library. The library will come to you. Will come to you. That's awesome. Okay, so first first things first, uh, go visit your public library. There's 75 counties in in the state. Yes. So if, yeah, so just doing the numbers, I mean, that's more than two libraries per county on average. Yes. Um, So that's. That's fantastic. Okay, so give us some examples. So you, you gave you gave a few examples, but I'm curious, have you seen the importance? I don't know if that's the right word. Have you seen the need or the service that a library um, provides for its community uh, increase? Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it during the COVID period uh, of life, over the last year and a half or so. And if so... What are some ways that libraries around the state have served their uh, patrons is the word that you, that you yes. use. So I'll go with that. How about that? Yes. So I will say that we have seen library service, we'll just say change completely. Okay. I think when the pandemic hit. So March of 2020, we had libraries closing, we had schools closing, and 
you know, everybody was asking, you know, gosh, what do we do? How do we deliver service? How do we reach our patrons? Because they still need us. Mm-hmm. The need hasn't gone away. We still want to serve them. So how do we do this creatively? Mm-hmm. So I think it has been a really neat um, period of time for creativity. So one of the things that we saw um, is curbside delivery. Oh, wow. Which okay. is really cool. Yeah. So um, again, we have a lot of rural, small libraries, kind of an everybody knows everybody in the community kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So and even in those places, you know, the librarians were still at the library working. They were just working behind the scenes and perhaps they couldn't have people come into the library. Oh, wow. So somebody could pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I want the next bestseller. Will you go ahead and check that out to me? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll call you when I get there. And the library w- would come deliver that book or whatever material the person was checking out to the patron. Wow. Same with remote printing because you think about, okay, if you have – stuff that you need to print off and you might not have a printer or computer at home, a lot of times people would come to the library. Mm-hmm. So we've seen libraries set up remote printing processes where somebody can come to the library, they can email it, the library can print it, the librarian can, again, do that curbside delivery and deliver it to a patron. So all of the things that were typically going on in the library are still going on. Wow. It just looks different. Yeah. So I, and I know that now that we've opened up some mm-hmm. um, at this stage in the pandemic, we still see that some of these services have been, patrons love it. Mm-hmm. So patrons love having books, you know, curbside delivery. So I think that moving forward, we're still going to see some remnants of that because we saw that patrons really enjoyed some of that level of service. Mm-hmm. And I think the librarians did too. And I think virtual programming is one that has also been pretty popular. So if you used to take your toddler to toddler time at the library, right? but all of a sudden the library was closed, they've done a fantastic job of, you know, doing these things virtually, Facebook Live, all of these other ways of delivering the service. And so sometimes that's really convenient because if you're a parent that's working and maybe you couldn't go to toddler time before, now, all of a sudden, if it's virtual and maybe it's recorded, when you get home, if you've got a connection, you can do that virtual program with your child from home. So we've seen different ways for libraries to interact with their patrons during the pandemic. And I think we'll probably go back to a hybrid model at some point, but that's sure. yet to be determined exactly what that looks like. So libraries have a lot of reasons to, uh, to engage in this broadband conversation. Most definitely. I'd say that it's integral to the service that they provide. And I, th- I think the pandemic has really brought home this idea that a library is not constrained to the four walls. Mm-hmm. The libraries are outside those walls. They're anywhere in the community when the pa- where the patron is. And if you have that broadband connection, mm-hmm. then you can access libraries, whether that's ebooks or audiobooks or educational databases. But also our libraries, you know, if they need to, you can pick up the phone and you can call them as well. That works too. So nice. We we're big fans of uh, checking out books from the library uh, on our on our Kindles in my yes. house. So 
I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's people out there who don't realize that they can still do that. Can you do that statewide at yes. libraries? I'm curious. Yes. In fact, um, we have a statewide consortium okay. that all that public libraries can join. And so basically what it means is you get e- even more titles. So if your local public library is part of that statewide consortium, then you have access to even more titles. But I would say that the vast majority of our public libraries offer some form of ebooks, if not all of them. I think that there may be, I might have to look for an exception to that rule, but I would say that um, generally public libraries offer ebooks, audiobooks, all sorts of digital resources to check out. And, and a great catalog. I was going to say, and these are real dollars and cents. I mean, you're talking yes. $8, $10 a book if you buy it online uh, versus $0 to check it out from the library. Right. It's really easy. You just go yeah. to the library and check it out. And then you might not even have to go to the library. You just need a library card mm-hmm. to access that collection. Old school. I like it. Yeah. Well, yes, because, you know, the public library wants to, they need to know, like, who who has a, pub, a public library card okay. in our community. Yeah. Um, and once you have that card, it does open up all sorts of resources. And the ebooks is just one of them. But you're right. There is an incredible value to being able to go to the library and check it anything else that they might have. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I realized the other day, so I was in mid book. I had not been reading as much as I should have. So my book was due and unlike uh, a physical book, it just goes away. So you're not late turning it back in. And right. I, I asked my wife, I said, Oh my goodness, I, I wasn't finished. Do you think I'll have to find my place again? Do you know, I was surprised to find out. My place was still there. I rechecked yes. out the book, downloaded again, and it was like remembered where I was. How convenient is that? Yes, I know the amazing things that technology can deliver. I think it's all because of this problem. I, mean, I mean, what we're talking about, this access to this consortium and things like this, is all goes back to the broadband issue, right? Correct. Yes. That's so cool. Well, I'm I'm thinking about. Uh, I know. I know we're, you work with libraries across the state, but I'm thinking about, are there a couple of libraries that stand out um, that are really doing some cool or innovative things or just really getting this right that you would like to talk about or brag on, I guess? Yes. Oh, I always love an opportunity to brag on our Arkansas public libraries. So there's a couple that come to mind. Um, and the first one is the Forest City Public Library. Okay. And I think that that library just does such an amazing job working with the community, knowing what it is that they need, and then delivering that Mm -hmm. service. So I know I was talking to the librarian just the other day, and she was telling me that she has a group of students that that live in the community that that have opted to do online school this year. Okay. And so they come to the library. They use the library's internet connection to do the virtual school, but also the library is a safe place Mm -hmm. where these students can gather to, to do their schooling. And so that's an example of, you know, formally supporting school. But also I know that, you know, you have homeschool students that can come in and use the library connection as well. But um, the Forest City Public Library has also done some pretty amazing things with the services that they offer. So they help their patrons file their taxes online, which is not easy. Yeah, I know. And that's a service that they have They've worked with, um, I think, other community stakeholders mm-hmm. and done that 
every year, which I think is pretty wow. amazing. And then now that we're in the pandemic, you know, they do other things, assisting again with that digital navigation, just um, sitting down one-on-one with the patron to make sure that they understand ha- that digital literacy piece so that mm-hmm. they can actually um, fill out the forms because they're not always easy or sometimes it might be, you know, you need to upload documents into an online form. That's not yeah. easy. So the Forest City Public Library does a great job having library staff that can work as a digital navigator. Yeah. Um, they also do really cool things like they check out hotspots and they oh, check wow. out laptops and, yeah. and tablets so that if they know that they have people in their community that you know, don't have that connectivity, they can go ahead and check out a connected kit, mm-hmm. a hotspot and a tablet to take home if they need to do work or schoolwork, um, any of the above. So it's pretty inspiring. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about a conversation that will be part of this podcast. and Maybe you've already listened to it uh, as part of this episode, but with Dr. Sanford and talking about healthcare, um, yes. you know, broadband connectivity and healthcare. So it almost seems like, from what you're telling me, connecting the dots quickly, you could check out an iPad to help you get to a doctor's appointment or a mobile hotspot to help you make that doctor's appointment because they're seeing some of the sort of the same things for appointments where people are going to a Starbucks or a McDonald's right. or even a library parking lot to make a doctor's appointment. And these types of services that some of the libraries are providing could help you do that from home. Exactly. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think the relationship between libraries and telemedicine is something that it's, it's been part of the discussion in the past and we've talked about it, but the conversation is completely different now that we're in the midst of the pandemic. But having a hotspot checkout, a mm-hmm. tablet checkout available allows that patron to go home where they have some privacy because mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want to have those telemedicine visits in public right. where there are other people that can can hear those privileged conversations. Mm-hmm. So, yes, definitely. Hotspot and laptop checkout can very easily be used for telemedicine and the digital guide there in the librarian to kind of help you understand how to work that tablet before your appointment comes. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think that's one of the benefits of checking out a hotspot or a hotspot and a tablet from the public library Mm -hmm. is you have somebody there who can explain some of these things because especially if you've never worked hotspot before you don't even know how it's going to connect at your home sure just having somebody who you know probably the library has written a guide and they can walk you through it and then also if something goes wrong you have somebody to call Mm. which is also really nice and part of that you know digital navigator service tech support tech support yes library is tech support i think that a lot a lot of what a library does is tech support (laughs) well that's great well as we wrap up our conversation here i think we clearly uh understand better thanks to you uh why uh libraries are interested in this broadband conversation and connectivity uh conversation here uh just lastly just curious in the short term you don't we don't have to predict the future, but in the short term, you know, what is, what does connectivity and broadband, you know, mean to and look like for uh, our local libraries simply? Yeah. So I think that what we're going to see is that up until now, a library has been just fine getting a connection that has a fast download speed, 
but they haven't necessarily been as concerned about that upload speed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, telemedicine, which is one example, but I think any time that you're doing, you know, video calls, doing work, that upload speed is just as important as the download speed. So I think as these library services evolve and change with the current situation, we'll see that the broadband landscape is really important. Of course, we always need faster connections, but we also need to make sure that that upload speed is adequate as well. Yeah. Dr. Sanford was telling us that we built a consumer broadband network, a consumer internet network, which I think is defined as 25 megabits per second download, but only three megabits per second upload. And he he was mentioning that at the, you know, at before the pandemic, you know, video games were the biggest user of, of upload. And now here we are with people working from home or having healthcare appointments. And I think uh, we're seeing that I, I love that you mentioned the upload speeds because we're seeing that importance of that grow and as libraries become that or continue to serve as that center. Uh, I love that you guys are focused on that upload speed as well to help people do what they frankly just need to do to live life. Right. Just to participate in society and education. Um, and, and I'm glad actually that you mentioned uh, we built a consumer network because mm-hmm. I think that we need to remember that our libraries as well as our schools are anchor institutions. So we really want them to be able to have a much faster speed available just because they are serving their entire community. Yeah. Well, Amber, thank you so much for joining us on the Arkansas AgCast and sharing with us uh, what makes broadband connectivity important to libraries. Thank you so much for having me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks. Jenny Higgs learned more about the work of Heartland Forward from the organization's chief program officer, Angie Cooper. And here's more about broadband expansion efforts in other states. Hey, everyone. We have Angie Cooper here. She's executive director of Heartland Summit and chief program officer of Heartland Forward. But that's just a title. So, Angie, can you can you give us a little more explanation? What, what is it that you, you really do, the core of it? Yeah, it's great visiting with you today. So Heartland Forward, we're a fairly new organization. We started in 2019 with the mission of how do we help change the narrative about the middle of the country and kickstart economic growth. Mm -hmm. We do that two ways. We call ourselves a policy think and do tank. And on the think side, we do, we put out amazing research and data. We have a full team of economists Um, that are looking at issues that impact the heartland, which we defined as 20 states. Think everything from North Dakota down to Texas, over to Alabama, up to kind of the Michigan, Ohio, and all the states in between. So we work on the on the research side and um, put out data and reports that are that are resources for states and communities. And then on the do side, that's sort of where I live most of the time. I lead our programmatic efforts as well as Heartland Forward's flagship event, Heartland Summit. When I say think and do, though, we really focus on how do we put our research into action and how do our programmatic efforts influence our research. And we focus on four areas. The first area is innovation and entrepreneurship. The second is human capital and workforce development. The third is health and wellness. And the fourth is regional and economic competitiveness. So again, how, how are we a resource for states and communities within the heartland? How are we sharing information across the heartland to advance economic growth? And um, just 
you know, have enjoyed um, being part of the yeah. organization. I, I grew up in, in policy and government affairs, yeah. and it's been a great opportunity. I'm from Oklahoma, so love that we're, love the work that we're doing and, and helping share stories that are, that are happening in the middle of the country. Right, right. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming from everything from a very, uh, I like to call it the kindergarten level of, you know, I'm going to be the uh, citizen with the basic questions on things. So, um, and I know you all come from a very high level of, of this, handling it on a, you know, the Heartland scale. I know you talked about four other or three other states besides Arkansas that you're involved with in, in the Heartland Summit, correct? Is that but through our initiative, Connecting the Heartland to Heights, yes. Internet Access. Yeah, we're okay. focused in four states. So Arkansas, Illinois, Tennessee, and Ohio. Right, right. So um, if so, everyone who's listening today, as you've caught on, we're all talking about how we can have better broadband access here in Arkansas. That's the whole point. And we're bringing in all these people who are dealing with this, not only in Arkansas, but on a larger scale. And Angie's one of those. Um, so... Angie, what, what have you noticed, if you can speak to it, what other states are doing um, that you've worked with that maybe we can learn from? Or I know you asked um, uh, Catherine DeWitt earlier about it, but but from your perspective, what, what have you noticed as well? Yeah, um, so the state of Arkansas is doing great work. As the governor mentioned, you know, the work sort of launched before COVID even happened and, and when this issue became front and center. But what we see from other states is, I, I said uh, on stage earlier, we can't overthink this. A lot of the solutions, we need to simplify the way we're going about it. And a lot of, a lot of it takes coordination, communication, and bringing the right stakeholders around the table to ensure you're getting the right input um, to fully execute. And so we feel really strongly about that. Um, we've put in place a number of different efforts to 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 ensure that communications is happening and that states and communities are getting the right resources. Uh, we know that the states that are building strong coalitions that then help influence policy and government practices that then are also those coalitions and stakeholders are actually helping with the grant-making process and they're being a resource, that's where, again, the magic kind of happens and mm -hmm. things get done. Because, wow, I mean, we've heard today there's so there's so much information out there. There's It's great there's a lot of funding, but it's complex. Complicated yeah. to figure out who's eligible, who's not, how yeah. can I use it, how long is the grant application, right. do I have a person to actually write the grant application, so, you know, the success that happens in those communities and states um, where we've worked to date, it's it's bringing those right people to the table and just recognizing, look, silos have to come down, mm -hmm. and we have to all work together. Right, right, because you can be handed something, but if you don't know what to do, to, do with it or how to implement it, then what's the use of it That's being exactly handed right. over? Or are, you, or are you using it to the best of its ability? And we heard earlier from, um, I believe, uh, Lindsay, yeah, Lindsay Holman, she was talking about all the grants. And uh, we didn't get to speak to her on the podcast today, but there were so many grants she was talking about and the complicated process that you're speaking of. And what I've noticed is we yeah, really need people to guide us on how to take advantage of those in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you 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 asked Catherine the question, but I wanted to hear hear it from you. Um, you know, as a state, what are besides I know you mentioned bringing people to the table together, having the right people together, um, which today was a first step towards that. Uh, 
what are some other things um, states can implement or like what can we do as a state to implement or the best next step forward for us? Absolutely. So I mentioned the three A's, availability, adoptability, and affordability. Adoptability is real, both from, you know, making sure people in communities know what service provider they should go to, how they get how they get service. Um, adoptability is also real on the digital skills. So um, something that the state of Arkansas can continue to do, and, and we've helped support uh, working with an organization called Lead for America of putting fellows in communities. So there's a fellow in Mayor Scott's office in Little Rock. There's a fellow in Magnolia working with an organization that is literally going out in the community and providing those digital skills um, to the community so they can get connected. And then that third, the third A is uh, affordability. And we have got to figure out that's the biggest barrier still to date. Um, But as, as we look at policies going forward, one, we need to make sure at the state level we're modernizing our policies and streamlining so states can be effective. And that's that's included on both the adoptability and affordability piece. We need to continue to have policies that are, are transparent and across the board. Um, and then we also need to think about, uh, you know, what does what the future hold? You know, what what does it look like in the next three to five years? And, and what policies that are we streamlining to ensure that there are not barriers for local municipalities to mm-hmm. actually go do some stuff on their own? Mm-hmm. And in today, Arkansas is not the only state, but there's other states where there's still barriers that exist. So we need to bring down some of those barriers and then and then make sure that all levels of government are staying connected and coordinated. Yeah, yeah. And I think I also heard you say not only that, but like how are we down the line gonna be successful? Like great, you've implemented all this stuff, but you know, what happens, you know, twenty years from now when, you know, my children are coming through or something like that, like <laughs> does it all go to, you know, down the down the drain or, or anything like that? So um, I thought that was really important to hear too. Um, before we uh, sign off here, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to let, um, we li- we have a lot of agriculture people who listen to our AgCast. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why Farm Bureau was connected in all of this is because not only your healthcare education, but agriculture, you know, is the number one industry here in Arkansas and they deal with a lot of technology. So um, is, is there any way or any guidance you can give those people if they're experiencing issues or if they're wanting to improve or get something implemented that you're speaking of in your local community? Is it the local, you know, it wasn't commissioner term that you used, they go to them, you know, how, what can we do as citizens in the state to make it better or yeah yeah and to your point I mean agriculture is so important for the state of Arkansas and Mm -hmm. that's where innovation can happen and you can't have Mm -hmm. innovation if you don't have access to high-speed internet right so I would just encourage folks um you know contact Heartland Forward you can contact me directly uh Angie Cooper it's Cooper Cooper at heartlandforward.org. I couldn't remember my email address. <laughs> at first, I thought, I was like, I was like, Angie, I don't know your email address. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were looking at me. I was like, I don't know. Help it. me out here. <laughs> Help me out. Um, but you can get online at Heartland Forward and, and contact uh, v- via info um, to ask questions. And, and we're happy to help because I mentioned earlier, it's going to take all of us. These are, these are big challenges and we've all got to work together. And um, 
it is truly the future of our state, no matter what industry you're in, and, and agriculture is right there at the top. So um, today's been great, and appreciate Farm Bureau bringing us together, and I definitely look forward to being in touch. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Angie. Appreciate it. Finally, Jason Brown sits down with Missouri State Representative Lewis Riggs, who shares the steps his state took to implement a statewide broadband initiative in the last few years, including the role played by Farm Bureau. Representative Riggs, thank you for joining me on the Arkansas AgCast. Uh, I, uh, I just wrapped up listening to your uh, conversation with the uh, Legislative Committee uh, hearing here at the Arkansas Connectivity Summit and wanted to grab you for a few minutes just to kind of recap for us the, the journey uh, that the state of Missouri has taken in its broadband work uh, over the past few years, if you don't mind. First, it's encouraging that you still want to talk to me after hearing uh, <laughs> my, my testimony. Uh, it's a really good question, and frankly, it has a Farm Bureau-related answer. Uh, Missouri had a, a program of sorts about a decade ago. Uh, wasn't uh, really well resourced. It went away. And the precursor to what happened with Missouri's broadband program was Farm Bureau, mm -hmm. uh, getting a lot of stakeholders together in 2017 in Jefferson City in July. And told those folks, and you all know it, uh, you go to Farm Bureau meeting, you get fed very well. <laughs> so, you know, folks are coming to, to get a, a meal. Uh, but at the same time, we got basically all the stakeholders in one spot at one time, uh, closed the doors. And it wasn't something we're not going to, you know, let you out of here until you solve this. But it was more an engagement piece where people put the cards on the table. We had a presentation from a broadband director out of Minnesota. So we could actually hear from somebody who'd done it, uh, had mm -hmm. done it well. We knew we weren't alone. But we also had some really good resources through Farm Bureau mm -hmm. um, in the presence of Janie Dunning, uh, who was statewide director of USDA Rural Development for, I think, eight years uh, she had been with USDA Rural Development over 40 years and retired. And basically, she was retired for, I think, days um, before Farm, Farm Bureau grabbed her and said, hey, um, we want to get into broadband in deadly earnest. You have the background. Everybody in the state knows Everybody trusts her. Uh, she's originally from my neck of the woods, Clark County, which is way up on the Iowa border. But she had that reputation uh, of being somebody who was honest, uh, straightforward, and would not steer you wrong. So all those years of dealing with the federal government, uh, knowing what their vocabulary is, uh, USDA, all those great connections with all those folks in, in the agricultural space paid off. And frankly, um, Farm Bureau was, was basically the catalyst that made it happen for us. Uh, that 2017 meeting led to several different things in 2018, uh, the State Broadband Fund. Uh, the state broadband office, uh, which mm -hmm. now has a director, and the state standard, which 25-3. So basically matched up with what the feds are doing. But also at the same time, um, Janie was instrumental in helping with uh, developing the strategic plan, basically the, the ground rules we operate by with that state fund. Uh, and, and I won't say the rules we live by, but basically uh, it's a framework. It's guided. Uh, mm -hmm. It's administered well. We have a state broadband director named Tim Arbeiter. He was a native Missourian, had been in several different positions before. Again, somebody we know, we like, we trust. Uh, gets out all over the state, talks to everybody. Uh, he hears folks all the time. Uh, literally, from time to time, he answers the phone and tells them where their broadband is or isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, it's to that point. Uh, so I, I think this meeting today, and precursor to, uh, from what I'm hearing from the legislators I've, I've visited with, 
you're going to have the same dynamic in Arkansas. People are asking the right questions. You got the right people in the room at the right time. You got all this money coming out of the feds. What are we going to do with it? Do we, want to, we want to make sure that what we have um, it goes where it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Number one, number two, we need the, the uh, legislative oversight piece as well. Uh, so folks out there aren't squandering what they've had. In, uh, different states have had different experiences, but all of them have a common denominator. There are a lot of bad actors out there who basically game the system. They know how to fill out these applications at the federal level. Uh, and they shut out a lot of folks who are your friends, your neighbors, your co-ops, your local telcos, what have you. Uh, they just can't play in the sandbox with the big boys. It just isn't going to happen. Well, state fund gives you the opportunity to not go there. Basically mm. do what you need to do the way you need to do it. Get this real last mile access done by the people who are your neighbors. They're there for the long haul. They live there. They get it. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to come into your state basically like, you know, the East India Company or something and basically extract wealth from you in, the, in terms of federal dollars and put up a couple of towers and they go away, which is what we've seen all over this country. Uh, so having the state piece basically be a part of that, we're closer to the problem than the feds. They throw the money out. They don't do a, a great job of oversight if they do any job at all. And frankly, it's up to the states, I think, to solve a lot of these problems. Uh, one problem is mapping. We all know that F- FCC maps are old by definition when they're released. We've got statewide folks out there doing GIS. They can do a better map. Why aren't we doing that? Because we haven't funded it. Um, Another thing to look at is uh, basically the census block methodology, if we can get away from that. And the feds are finally moving away from it after way too many years of not. Uh, A lot of folks get knocked out of that process. i got a county that hasn't seen federal dollars yet because census block says, well, they're served. They're not. They know they're not. It's in my district. It's one of the 10 worst served in the state. It's the third oldest county in the state. So what's telemedicine mean for them? Not a lot because they're not going to get it anytime soon. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of really good issues out there, but it's just I think the centrality of the Farm Bureau to that process, getting these stakeholders together. Everybody knows Farm Bureau. Uh, everybody trusts Farm Bureau, and it's something that, frankly, it's it's great to see that happening in Arkansas, basically the same way it happened in Missouri. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point um, of, uh, or a good reminder to our folks who have participated today that um, other states that, that we're sort of looking at as a model, Missouri and, and Mississippi and others, you know, started uh, with similar conversations led by Farm Bureau. And Farm Bureau is interested strictly because, you know, part of our mission involves, you know, quality of life for rural communities and, and farmers and ranchers. And so that's why we're involved, not not to get into the broadband business, but to, to improve that quality of life. So that's 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 great to hear. And, and, and it's, I guess it's uh, vindicating is the word, uh, reassuring maybe um, that you say, you know, to come in and say, hey, you guys might be a few few years after the fact, but you're having a lot of the similar conversations, asking the right questions and, th- and things like that. I'm curious, do you have, you know, if you could give three or four pieces of advice, you know, to Arkansans, whether it be rural, I'm thinking about those rural communities uh, who are listening to the podcast, you know, what do, what do they, what, what sort of information could they share? What are the questions that they might ask to legislators and others uh, to sort of help, you know, build the process. I think the most important piece right now is the accountability piece. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got all this money, unconscionable sums of money flowing out from D.C. Where is it going? Is it going uh, 
to my farm. Uh, and I look at something like with Iowa, basically their their strategic plan is last acre, not last mile, last acre. Interesting. And I, I get to see from my vantage point on Highway 61 in, in northeast Missouri, uh, the stuff that Johnny Putt-Putt's uh, pushing down uh, south from, from the Quad Cities. You know, it takes two flatbeds now to get the combines out. They're that big, $500,000, $600,000 piece of equipment. It's only as good as a GPS that's powering it. And also hearing from folks that the telemetry that these, you know, GPS coordinates are, are sending back, that just the sheer reams of data, basically it's its own industry now mm-hmm. where folks are analyzing that. The equipment dealers like, what do we do with all this data? Well, somebody's going to have to parse through that and figure out exactly what it's going to do for you in terms of, you know, your, your input costs, what it's going to do to your yield. You know, how's that going to affect you long term down the line? And, you know, with prices, you know, cratering recently, but been pretty good for a while. A lot of folks are investing in new equipment. Well, why wouldn't you? They're paying down debt. Why wouldn't you? But they're only as good as the internet signal that that, that will activate. And we had the same talk today with the, with students, rural students, and hotspots. Only as good as your cell phone signal that activates it. Same thing uh, with your farm equipment today. And it isn't cheap. We know that. So it's a great investment for us as a state, Missouri. You know, like like our, so our number one uh, economy uh, basically is agricultural based, and we have the most diverse farm economy in the country. We're in the top 10 and like 10 different crops. So we've got all sorts of folks doing all sorts of really interesting things. How do we make sure that the money's going where it's supposed to go? So everybody literally who wants it can have a decent crack at it. We're just not there yet. Yeah. You're, I love the, the implement and equipment um, comparison. Uh, I was talking with one of the uh, other speakers from the day who, who's focused on healthcare but we kind of got to talking about this data collection piece and, and utilization and the collection. You can collect all the data you want, but if you can't utilize it and, and, or if you can't uh, interpret that, you know, it's really no good to you. And when you're talking about farmers, you're talking about input costs, you know, input cost reductions potentially as a result of that data. Lots real of dollars. Input costs, in, yeah, replant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, real dollars up. and cents right there immediately, you know, so. You know, and to, to piggyback on that, as far as telemedicine, uh, let's be honest, the average age of the Missouri farmer now is 59 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it going to take to bring that down? It's going to take young people. And I've talked to folks all over the state, and we all whine and we cry, oh, my gosh, they're leaving, they're never coming back. You're right, they're not, because you don't give them Internet. And that's something, these are digital natives. These young people grew up with this stuff that's you know, first nature to them, it's second nature. I'm 60 years old, so I see the new whatever. It's like, oh, this is the greatest, you know. They look at it and say, well, um, it's the worst <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're continuing, they're, their paradigm is completely different from ours. And sure. I've got young people in my district who would desperately like to t- take a side gig, basically, you know, do something from the home where they sell stuff over the Internet. They literally can't get enough bandwidth to process a PayPal payment. Mm-hmm. How sad is that? And these are folks, a lot of them want to stay home. They want the, the kids to stay home. Transport is a huge issue for us in Missouri. I'm sure it's, it's, it's equally as daunting in, in Arkansas as it is for us. And folks basically going back and forth to the doctors. Why on earth are we doing that? Why are sick people going into doctor's houses when they don't have to, mm-hmm. when they could basically sit there at home and Zoom their doctor in? We're just, again, we're just not there yet. So the stuff that the people in the suburbs enjoy and have enjoyed for 15, 20 years uh, they have no clue of what people go through in rural areas, just none. And I actually uh, talked with somebody, um, an economic developer, who talked with a, a prominent Missouri legislator and was complaining about the Internet, and the answer is, well, why don't you move to town? 
because we don't want to move to town. Uh, we, <laughs> we like where we are. I'm seventh generation in, in my family. We, mm-hmm. we understand what we're about. We, we don't want, you know, an hour or two hour commute. We don't want the crime. We don't want all the other stuff that goes with it. Mm-hmm. We want to basically stay where we are, do what we've always done, which is persevere. But for crying out loud, would you help us get into the 21st century with everybody else? That's not too big an ask. Yeah, we talk about it uh, around our office, uh, the same as rural electrification. And I've, I've heard that comparison a few times. Absolutely. So it's that important. Or you, you mentioned it in your remarks as well. Yeah, I had a, a step-great-grandmother who was born in a log cabin. They, they later split, pritzed the house up a little bit. But she had a huge lantern in a corner of a corner of the living rooms. So and mm-hmm. what's that all about? And she said, well, you know, the lights go out. I've got light. But she also said, this is what life looked like before we had electricity to this house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was like 55 when they, when they brought it there. But, you know, the model then was the feds are, are driving that bus saying, hey, we're going to do this, get it out there. But you had to have skin in the game yourself, that $5 basically to take it from the pole to the house. Mm-hmm. So you, had, you actually had an investment in that yourself. If you don't want it, fine. Stay in the dark for the rest <laughs> of your life. But $5 will get you light. Mm-hmm. Everybody took the light. Mm-hmm. And that's, we're to the same point now with, with broadband internet. It's, it touches and concerns everything we do. It's not just precision in agriculture or online education. It's quality of life issue, which is telemedicine. Mm-hmm. That is permanent work from anywhere. Why do people want to go different places to work? They want vitamin D. They want to hunt and fish. They basically want to be left alone. Okay. So we found this out in, in Missouri in my neck of the woods, Mark Twain Lake. We're seeing people come up from St. Louis County because they get better internet next to Mark Twain Lake than they do in St. Louis County. But at the same time, they also don't have to deal with the traffic. They don't have to deal with the crime and the other stuff that goes on with it. They can hunt and fish. They can drown worms in Mark Twain Lake all week long now instead of the weekends. And, oh, by the way, the property values are a heck of a lot less, so they're paying less taxes. But what does it do for us as property owners, counties? Gee, we just increased your tax base because mm-hmm. fiber of the home, assessed valuation just went up 5 to 7% or whatever the, the number is now, and it just keeps going up. And we're hearing from our realtors, um, you know, the take rates have increased because, frankly, uh, young people aren't going to buy a home without it. And the other folks uh, – who don't have it when it's time to sell a home are going to wish to goodness they had. Mm-hmm. So realtors are actually going out and buying it basically to get it to the home and saying, here, uh, we, we're going to sell this house the old fashioned way, but at the same time, we're going to add value to the property. So I increased my tax base without raising a tax. I just added value. Mm-hmm. How, how easy a formula is that? So your schools are happy. Your County road and bridge funds happy because you just raise your revenue without anybody being taxed more. That that's a win-win for everybody. And sure. it's something that, it's hard to explain to folks that they don't understand what it's like to deal without, but the ones who do without, boy, they really get it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we're on the dark side of the moon here. This, we might as well literally be on a different planet because we're having a different experience from everybody else. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, like I said, so insightful and, and uh, appreciate the uh, information. You know, I think what is most helpful now, it sounds like after spending the day here, is the experience. Um, and you certainly – have the experience to share with our leadership here in the state and we appreciate you making the time to share not only with with our leadership and the folks who are part of the event today but here on the podcast well appreciate the opportunity and it's great to come down here and talk with folks but uh, everybody's asking the right questions and it's just a matter of time before you know the pieces of the puzzle get put together and you guys have a lot brighter future 
uh, you know, two, three years down the road than, than you're looking at today. And that's, that's my hope and my prayer for everybody is, is that 2022 is the year. With all this money flowing down, we have got to grab as much as we possibly can and put it to work, and it needs to be in broadband. It needs to be today. Awesome. Representative Riggs, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's all for this week. Join us next Thursday for more discussion and news on Arkansas agriculture.